Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A string of attacks in the summer of 2007 don't appear to be related, but are they? This is Method and Madness, Episode 24, Murder by Miles. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. What time of day do you feel at your most relaxed? How about when you feel the safest? Many people will say it's that time of night when you're getting ready to settle in or you're dozing off around midnight to whatever's on the TV. The familiar buzz of the cars on the street outside beginning to dwindle down. The sounds of summer. The crickets. Let's dive in. 42-year-old Darlene Ewalt lived in West Hanover Township, Pennsylvania, a town northeast of Harrisburg in Dauphin County, with her husband Todd and their college-age son Nick. Darlene and Todd married young and raised two kids. It was the summer of 2007, just shy of their 23rd wedding anniversary, when their friends Patty and Chet Gerhardt invited them along on a Caribbean cruise set to sail that October. Darlene was ecstatic. It was a thank you to the Ewalds for all the years that Darlene had babysat the Gerhardt kids and for Todd's dedication to coaching the kids in football. Todd Ewald had to regretfully decline the generous invite. The cruise was happening smack in the middle of football season, and as a coach, he couldn't make it happen, but his wife Darlene decided to go on without him, disappointed but excited at the same time. The day after the invite, on a hot summer night, July 12, 2007, Darlene was on her patio in her backyard on the cordless phone with Chet Gerhardt discussing the details of their upcoming dream vacation. She had some ideas about who could come along with her, one of her girlfriends maybe, and she wanted to learn everything, what to pack, what ports they'd stop at, all of the amenities that the cruise ship had to offer. It was a lot to look forward to. It was around 10 p.m. when her husband Todd came outside to the patio to say goodnight. Darlene told him she'd be up to bed in a bit, but remained chatting on the phone with her friend. After all, she was a night owl. The phone conversation crept past midnight, which was typical of Darlene. She was the type to talk to friends for hours. It was now about 2 a.m., Friday, July 13th. Darlene was mid-sentence when Chet, on the other end of the call, heard something that he felt in the pit of his stomach, something that sounded very wrong. Darlene's voice, demeanor, suddenly shifted, and through the phone he could hear his friend say, Who are you? Followed by her terrified voice saying, Oh my God, about four times. Then the call went silent. Chet shouted Darlene's name, started screaming her name. He was panicked. 
The call wasn't disconnected, but he couldn't hear anything and Darlene wasn't responding to his screams. He tried calling her house number from a cell phone but got a busy signal. Chet ran to his wife, who was in bed, and hurried her out the door to their car, urgently telling her that something happened to Darlene and they had to get over to the Ewalds' home right away. Chet drove him and his wife Patty the 15-minute drive, which they did in 10 minutes. The entire time, Patty kept trying to call the Ewalds' home phone, but only got a busy signal. When Chet and Patty pulled up to the house, it was quiet and still. Chet knew Darlene had been sitting in the backyard while they were talking, and he and Patty ran back there to check on her. The light from inside the kitchen, giving them just enough visibility to see Darlene still sitting in the patio chair, her eyes open, her throat slashed, and blood covering her. She was dead. Chet tried to stop Patty from seeing her, but it was too late. She saw and started screaming. They didn't see any sign of Todd. They weren't sure if he was inside, if the killer was still there. Where was the couple's son, Nick, who was home from college for the summer? Chet and Patty didn't know if a madman was lurking in the shadows. They went back to their car, locked themselves in, and dialed 911. Minutes later, police were at the Ewalt's home. The Gerhards were taken down to the station for their statements while other officers barged into Todd Ewalt's bedroom, ordering him to put his hands where they could see them. Todd was sound asleep but jolted awake, confused by who was in his bedroom. According to an interview he did with Dateline in 2009, in those first few moments, he thought it was his son and his son's friends pulling some kind of prank. But it was no prank, no joke, and Nick, from his bedroom, was also getting ordered out of bed. He and his dad were handcuffed, puzzled and asking where Darlene was, pleading, where was Darlene? But the officers weren't answering their questions. Todd and Nick were desperate to know what was going on. There were the flashes of photos being taken outside. Officers were serious, not acknowledging any questions being fired their way. When Todd noticed his wife's cell phone and purse were sitting on the table, he knew she hadn't left the house. He knew she was there somewhere. Nick was led into the kitchen where police removed his handcuffs and sat him down. It was then that he learned the horrible news, that his mom was dead. His screams were heard by his dad from another room just as another officer was telling Todd the same news. Something awful had happened in their own home while they were safe in their beds, and now hours later, the police were coldly informing them of the worst news they could imagine. Nick had to make the heart-wrenching call to his sister, Nicole, who lived just a few minutes away. She drove over in disbelief, collapsing on the front lawn when she pulled up and saw the police lights and police tape. While the Ewalt's family's lives were now altered forever, the police had their eyes on the likely suspect, the husband. What they knew was that a woman was murdered in her own home while on the phone with another man late into the night. The only eyewitness, a rabbit, in a wire pen in the backyard. Darlene was going on a vacation without her husband. Surely they needed to question Todd Ewalt, get him to crack. Maybe he'd confess to killing his wife and then stashing the weapon, doing a quick cleanup, and hurrying to bed before the police could get there. 
Todd adamantly denied any involvement in Darlene's murder, and he was questioned for days relentlessly about his marriage, about his finances. Investigators were trying to dig into any reason he would have for wanting his wife dead. Why was she on the phone with another man? Why was Todd not going on the trip? He took a lie detector test, which to his surprise, they told him he failed. And then he lawyered up, which made the police all the more suspicious. They didn't seem too concerned at the time that, according to Chet Gerhardt, Darlene had clearly asked her attacker who they were before she was brutally stabbed to death. Just days later, on July 17, 2007, 37-year-old Patricia Brooks was asleep on her couch inside her home 35 miles away from West Hanover on Bowers Bridge Road in Conwego Township, Pennsylvania. It was a house surrounded by cornfields near the Blue Ridge Mountains. And just after two in the morning, Patricia woke to a sharp pain in her right shoulder. Behind her was a man dressed all in black, stabbing her with a knife with a hook at the end of it. The knife slit her throat and she screamed just as the man stopped and calmly exited her house. She reached up and felt her neck and realized she was seriously injured as she saw her own blood pouring onto her carpet. She went upstairs to where her daughter and mother were sleeping, and they called 911. Patricia was transported to York Hospital, where she was treated for the wounds to her neck, chest, and shoulder, and she told police about her attacker. She said he was a white male with a, quote, pot belly who was dressed for the occasion wearing all black. Pants similar to a prison guard's uniform and a black hat. He had nothing that obstructed his face. A witness who was driving to work that morning around 4.30 a.m. saw a man walking away from the area where Patricia lived. The man was dressed all in black. Patricia was fortunate. She survived her attack, and she was able to describe the attacker's clothes and build, but hadn't gotten a clear look at his face and she didn't think she recognized him as anyone she knew or anyone from around town. There was also nothing missing from her home. This didn't appear to be a robbery. Had she scared the man off when she screamed? Did he think he had murdered her? Police in two different townships in Pennsylvania had their hands full. Conewago Township Police were trying to investigate the attempted murder of Patricia Brooks and police in West Hanover were failing to find any physical evidence to link Todd Ewalt to the vicious murder of his wife, Darlene. And 98 miles down the road, east down Highway 78, we go to Bloomsbury, New Jersey, a tiny town in Hunterdon County that, as of the 2000 census, had a population of 886 people. Current Bloomsbury resident Michelle describes the town as an interesting mix of old and new, where there are well-maintained Victorian homes, craftsmen from the mid-20th century, and newer homes built in the last 30 years. It's very lived-in and homey. Trees are mature, sidewalks showing characters of years gone by. For a small town, it's not an everybody-knows-everyone sort of place, but there's a camaraderie and a jeep wave as you pass through town. There on Main Street was the home of Monica Massaro, an outgoing, energetic 38-year-old Aerosmith fan and self-proclaimed rocker chick 
that lived alone in a duplex, a charming colonial with a rocking chair porch. It was Saturday, July 28, 2007, 11 days after the attack on Patricia Brooks, and Monica did something that her friends and family said were out of character for her. She stayed in. No concerts, no parties or social gatherings, just a quiet night at home. And there in the unassuming borough of Bloomsbury, Monica never locked her doors. She just didn't feel the need to. And so was the same that night when she turned in for the night exhausted. A few hours later, a noise woke Monica up. It sounded like somebody was in her house. Was it a dream? No, definitely not. She sat up in bed just as someone entered through her bedroom door. She tried to fight. She screamed, but she wasn't prepared. She was no match for the hunting knife that slashed her throat. Two days went by, and nobody heard from Monica. And then something else out of character. Monica didn't show up for a business appointment that Monday. Her client couldn't get a hold of her, so he drove over to her house to check that she was okay. Her car was in the driveway, but she wasn't answering the door or picking up the phone. The client called the police and asked them to come by Monica's home for a well-being check, and when they showed up, they saw nothing amiss at first. It didn't appear that the house had been broken into, no broken windows, no kicked-in doors. In fact, the front door was unlocked, and upon entering, the home looked okay, nothing out of the ordinary. It was when the state police detective entered Monica's bedroom that he saw her in bed, her throat slashed. Monica had several wounds. Her throat had been slashed and she had stab wounds to her abdomen and in between her legs. It seemed she had passed away sometime in the night hours of late Saturday or early Sunday, just 12 days shy of her 39th birthday. As cliche as it sounded, Murders just didn't happen in the sweet little town of Bloomsbury, which was smaller than a square mile. And a murder occurring in someone's home while they're in bed, well, that sounded personal. Who would want this lively, free-spirited woman dead? Homicide investigators began looking into Monica's dating life. Surely something there would lead them to her killer. Monica's friends later went on to say how unsettling it was to attend her funeral— looking around and wondering, could one of these people be responsible? Did someone here in this room take this woman from us in the most horrific way? Police spent the next several days canvassing the neighborhood to determine if additional evidence found could be helpful in naming Monica's killer. It was a friend of Monica's, Lauren Berger and her husband, that started to wonder if perhaps it wasn't someone they knew at all. While doing some web sleuthing, they discovered that two weeks before Monica's murder, another woman had been murdered in the same way, her throat slashed, Darlene Ewalt, who was murdered in her backyard. Police in Pennsylvania were looking at her husband, who had no connection to Monica. Meanwhile, 275 miles away, another attack had taken place. A similar type of attack. This time on a teenager in Chelmsford, Massachusetts.
welcome to Once Upon a Nightmare, your horror movie podcast. I am your host, Lorraine, and I'm here to chat about the fictional horrors of the world with some real horror thrown in. So if I want that true crime fix, I can just find a film based on actual events and chat about that. Still a horror movie. Loophole! I have had what some would call an unhealthy obsession with the horrors of the world for well over 30 years now, real and fictional. So if any of that piques your interest, you can find me on your podcast platform of choice. And of course, don't forget to rate and review and subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Bye. It was the night of Sunday, July 29th, 2007. The day before police would discover the body of Monica Massaro killed in her own bed. Around 11 p.m., police officers were called to an apartment in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, A woman reported that someone was trying to open her front door and that she saw a man hiding in the bushes outside her complex, just below her balcony. He'd been trying to get into her home and had been pounding on the door. The police arrived, but the man had disappeared. Just a few hours later, around 2 a.m., a 911 call came in from Kathy Crowley. Kathy's daughter had been sitting in the kitchen when she saw someone looking in the window watching her, and as if that wasn't terrifying enough, the someone was wearing a black mask. When Kathy stepped outside to check it out, she saw a man dressed all in black. According to her, he looked like a ninja. He stared at Kathy, and as she hurried back to her house and locked the door behind her, he followed and pounded on the door while she dialed 911. On that call, Kathy pleaded for the operator to send the police, saying that a man was trying to break into her home. She and her daughter had barricaded themselves in a bedroom and were listening to the banging on the doors. Kathy was certain the man had gotten inside. They braced themselves. But when the police arrived, once again, the man had already left. And finally, at the McDonough home in Chelmsford lived a family of four. Husband and wife, Kevin and Jeannie McDonough, had turned in for the night about 11 p.m. Their daughter, Shay, 15 years old, arrived home around midnight and stopped in her parents' room to say goodnight. Her dad, Kevin, was asleep, but she chatted with her mom, Jeannie, for a few minutes before heading to the kitchen to grab a snack and to watch some TV in the living room. And just like she usually did, if her brother Ryan wasn't home yet, she left the back door unlocked for him. Around 2 a.m., Shay got ready for bed and retired to the guest bedroom, which was cooler in the dead of summer than it was in her own bedroom. Little did she know, however, that her brother had called her parents before they went to bed to let them know he wouldn't be home. He was spending the night at a friend's house. So, unaware, the family were in bed, with their back door unlocked, and a man was in their neighborhood jiggling doorknobs. Just before 4 a.m., Shay woke up. Someone was in her room holding something to her throat. Groggy. She first thought it was her brother joking around, but quickly realized it was a weapon being held to her throat, and the person in her room was telling her not to make a sound or he'd fucking kill her. She could barely see in the dark room, but could tell there was a man standing over her, Someone dressed all in black, wearing a mask and gloves. He had his hand over Shay's mouth and nose so she couldn't scream, but she was able to make out just enough noise, a whimper, 
and she kicked her legs hard enough that the headboard of the twin bed bumped into the wall, and her parents, asleep in the next room, woke up. Kevin and Jeannie sensed something was wrong as they got out of bed and hurried to the guest room where the daughter was sleeping. They expected that maybe she was having a nightmare, but something prompted them both to check in on her. When they walked in, they saw the silhouette of a figure standing over Shay's bed. Kevin confronted the man, yelled at him, demanded to know what he was doing, and the man turned around to face him. Kevin was now face to face with the masked man, and instinctively he grabbed the stranger's wrists. It was then that he realized what the intruder was holding. Knife, Kevin yelled out. Kevin tried to get the man down to the ground, but the intruder was bigger, both in height and weight, 240 pounds, to Kevin's approximate 180 pounds. The two began to struggle, with Kevin holding onto the knife with one hand. He was able to get his arms around the intruder's neck into a chokehold, and Jeannie grabbed the knife from the man's hands, but his grip was so tight that she could only pull it by the blade, which cut her palms. Shay grabbed her cell phone and made a call to 911 while the intruder held onto the knife. Suddenly, the intruder was able to gain his footing and stand up. Kevin, holding onto his neck from behind, the two struggled some more until the intruder fell backwards into Kevin as Kevin fell against the bedroom wall. The intruder was now in Kevin's lap as Kevin kept a chokehold on him. He called out to Shay to grab his gun, and Shay said, okay, in a knowing way. Everyone that lived in that house knew that there was no gun, but hopefully this would help subdue the large attacker until help arrived. At the instruction of the 911 operator, Shay went outside to meet the responding police officers while Kevin and Jeannie continued to hold the intruder down and persuade him to hand over the knife. Jeannie thought the guy that had broken in was someone from Shay's school, but when the intruder spoke with a thick southern accent, the realization set in that this was an adult and he wasn't from around here, and that what could have happened that night could have been way worse. When the first officer arrived, the ordeal was finally over as the intruder was arrested and taken into custody. Jeannie McDonough was taken to the hospital to have her hands treated from the knife wounds, but Shay and Kevin fortunately didn't require any medical attention. The intruder was identified as 42-year-old Adam Leroy Lane, a high school dropout and career trucker from North Carolina. He was a married man with a daughter and two stepdaughters. Detective George Tyros said that at the McDonough home, quote, there was a couple of knives, large hunting knives, and there was a fanny pack belt that had the knife sheaths hanging from it. There was choking wire, a Chinese throwing star, and there was a leather mask with the eyes cut out and the mouth cut out, just a horrifying leather mask. Parked near the McDonough home at a rest stop was Adam Lane's rig, which police searched. Inside his truck, police found more disturbing items. There were a couple of DVDs, Rambo and Alien vs. Predator, but inside the portable DVD player was another movie called Hunting Humans. Hunting Humans is a direct-to-video movie 
and the plot centers around a character named Eric Blue, a serial killer that selects and kills his victims at random. Surely it was a disturbing item to have in your possession if you've just attacked a child with a knife, but all the police knew at that point was that this was a man who was most likely about to sexually assault a teenager and he was armed, but he wasn't a serial killer, was he? Meanwhile, the police in Pennsylvania were still trying to collect evidence to charge Todd Ewalt with the murder of his wife Darlene, but they were coming up short. In New Jersey, over the next several days, police were equally as frustrated trying to piece together what happened to Monica Massaro and whether her murder was a random attack. But the police in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Massachusetts would soon come together and start talking and realized that these three seemingly unrelated attacks all had something very important in common, something that linked each victim to Adam Leroy Lane. Darlene Ewalt's West Hanover home in Pennsylvania was right near Interstate 81, while Monica Massaro's Bloomsbury, New Jersey home was within walking distance from I-78 and a truck stop. And finally, The McDonough's in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, had a busy highway that ran right behind their house, I-495. It was Detective Jeff Noble who was investigating the murder of Monica that started to look into the proximity of her home and the truck stop. If this was a random attack, was it possible that her killer had been passing through town that last weekend of July? But how does one begin to figure out every person that passed through a truck stop on a particular weekend. Surely it would be dozens, if not hundreds of people from all over the country. Detective Noble turned to the FBI for their assistance in looking into the National Crime Database to see if there were any similar attacks recently that were similar in detail, a home invasion near a truck stop with a knife as the weapon. Sure enough, the FBI had information that there had been an attack in Massachusetts where a trucker had broken into a home and attempted to assault a teenage girl with a knife. It wasn't exactly the same circumstances as the murder of Monica. The victims were more than 20 years apart in age, but both homes were near a highway. And the fact that the attacker in Massachusetts was a career trucker was definitely compelling information. The investigators in New Jersey got in touch with law enforcement in Massachusetts and asked a series of questions to determine if they could link the two crimes. Detective Tyros had a list of evidence that had been pulled from Adam Leroy Lane's truck, and just like a clue from a movie, everything clicked. Inside the truck was a receipt for a radar detector, a purchase that had been made in Bloomsbury, New Jersey, the night that Monica was killed. It was a huge break but it wasn't quite the smoking gun that investigators needed. Police in New Jersey traveled to Massachusetts to question Adam Lane while he was in custody, hoping to get a confession out of him about the murder of Monica Massaro. Initially, Lane didn't want to talk about New Jersey. Then he asked if that state had the death penalty. Before long, Lane confessed. He told them that he knew about the woman in New Jersey that he had been there at her home and that her door had been unlocked. He claimed he was only there to rob her and he had the knife on him near her in the bed and she began to fight him and rolled onto the knife, slitting her throat. 
Here is a summary of Lane's confession in his own words, as obtained by the Star-Ledger. I've removed a few words for brevity, but nothing of consequence. I was walking around, monkeying around like I always do. I decided to go for a walk because I had lots of time. I got to where I'd walk five miles a night. I walked down the street, went and cut through some yards. I just picked one at random, walking through the neighborhood. How many, you know, if I seen somebody in the house or I seen somebody awake, I'd pass it. I didn't want no confrontation. Couple of houses, they were locked. The door was unlocked and I went in. I know I'm driving the nails in my own coffin, but you wanted the truth. This is the best I know how to describe it. And I'm trying not to die. I'm trying to tell you it was an accident. I was looking for money. I was losing everything I had. I didn't have much. And now I've lost everything, including my family. You should all get a big conviction off of this. There were no lights on. I was in the house, in the kitchen, got the keys that's on the table. I went out the back door, unlocked her car, got the pocketbook out, set it down, and went through it. Then I went in the closet and started, and she came in. I was in here. She didn't turn the light on, but when she seen me come around the corner, she touched. She had a remote control to the fan, turned that light on, and went to screaming. She sit straight up in bed and got out of bed when she seen me and started screaming, and I tried to get her to be quiet, and we started struggling. I didn't even have a knife out. I mean, you know... I only had the knife there in case a big dog. I tried to put my hand over her mouth to get her to be quiet. She bit my hand. Well, when I tried to get away, she wouldn't let me get away. She wouldn't let me leave. I tried push her back on the bed so I could get out. I fell. I had two back surgeries. I ain't got no strength. I mean, I might look big and mean, but I'm not. I'm Peasley, really, when it comes to wrestling around with anybody. Ask the man that put a chokehold on me because he weighed 70 pounds less than I did. Well, I had pushed her down at that point. I was going to show her the knife to scare her. Maybe I thought she'd let me go. And I was leaning on the knife, next to the bed, or on the bed for support. And she rolled, and she rolled over to get away, and got cut with it. I thought maybe it was just a little scrape or something. God, there was so much blood. She bled to death. I couldn't do nothing about it. It didn't take very long. Less than 60 seconds. I thought if I made it look like somebody mur- went in and ravaged her and all that, I'd make it a little better, but they wouldn't look toward me. I wanted to make it look like somebody, like some sex maniac, some sex crime. I cut her in a couple places after she was dead, between the legs on her stomach. See, this ain't, this ain't making it better. This is making me look like a maniac, but I didn't mean to hurt nobody. I didn't want to go to jail for the rest of my life or get a needle stuck in my arm. I didn't not have any relations with that woman before, after, or during. I love my wife very much. I ain't out for sexual joys. I went out the back door beside the car and up through the yard and back to the truck stop. I took her pocketbook from the car and the necklace I found in one of the drawers. I threw the credit cards and license in the trash can. Threw it on top of a building. I meant to throw away the necklace and never did. After that... And after that happened, I went back to the truck and tried to eat. And I bought a radar detector and went somewhere else, laid down, and tried to sleep. So that's how Adam Lane tried to explain away the murder of Monica. Of course, police weren't buying his story of Monica rolling onto the knife. And nobody in their right mind 
believes that Monica Massaro was faced with a killer in her own bedroom and prevented him from leaving, that she was holding him back. Police suspected they had a serial killer on their hands, that if Shay's parents hadn't heard her cries, they'd have more victims across the country. Knowing that Adam Lane was a trucker and that two of his victims lived close to highways, police began tracking his routes. Where had he been that summer and earlier? And were there other unsolved murders or other attacks with a knife near his highway routes? Adam Lane was caught on surveillance footage, recorded at Pilot Travel Center on Route 173 near Monica's home. The police had his confession, her necklace. It was a rock-solid case against him, but gave little relief to the residents of Bloomsbury, where the town's mayor, Mark Peck, said, quote, We were shocked. These kinds of things don't happen in Bloomsbury. We're a small, rural community. Before this murder, people used to leave their doors unlocked. They don't anymore. Adam Lane was caught in the act at the McDonough home, so that would also be a relatively easy case to prosecute. And then weeks later, when forensic testing was complete on the weapons found in Lane's possession, another break. One of his knives tested positive for blood, and that blood belonged to Darlene Ewalt. Adam Lane had parked his truck near Interstate 81 in Pennsylvania and walked into the night, trying doorknobs, looking in windows. And it was likely the voice of Darlene Ewalt from her backyard that got his attention. The random, violent attack on a woman who was talking with her friend about their upcoming cruise. The Ewalt family were relieved that the killer had been caught but still reeling from the whirlwind that had been the murder of their loved one. And the investigation into Todd Ewalt, the fact that he was so zeroed in on from the start that police never bothered to look elsewhere, was hard to swallow. What if other attacks could have been prevented? And finally, evidence tied Adam Lane to Patricia Brooks, who had survived the attack on her home in Pennsylvania. Bloody gloves found near her home, in a yard less than a mile from her house, had both hers and Lane's DNA on them. He had tossed them after leaving her house. Adam Lane's M.O. was to park his dark blue tractor and attached semi at highway truck stops. He'd grab his black fanny pack, strap it to his waist. It was packed with some of his necessary tools. He'd strap his hunting knife to his leg, pull the black mask over his head, and put on gloves. Walking through the suburban neighborhoods near the highway in the late hours when most people would be asleep or just settling in for the night, Lane would stop and look in windows, seeking out a woman, preferably a woman that was alone. If he saw one through the window, he'd try the doorknob. Most times, the door was locked. If Adam Lane came across a home that just felt right to him and the door was unlocked, he'd enter and start looking for the resident's personal possessions. At Monica Massaro's home, he went through her purse, knew her age, knew what she looked like before he even set foot in her bedroom. In Massachusetts, he had entered the McDonough home while the family was sleeping and went through Jeannie's and Shay's purses, zeroing in on Shay's school ID card. Lane even took souvenirs from his victims. A necklace of Monica's was found in the cab of his truck. The really frightening thing is the homes that Adam Leroy Lane got into and for some reason was scared off. 
the idea that this man was walking into people's homes without them knowing. Over the next year, Adam Leroy Lane would be charged with numerous offenses, including murder, attempted murder, and assault with a deadly weapon. He would go in front of a different judge in a different court for each attack and receive sentences for each victim if found guilty. And investigators would continue to look into his truck routes to see if he could be connected to any other crimes. But to date, he has not been charged with anything else. Adam Leroy Lane was born in Jonesville, North Carolina, and was married to his second wife at the time of the murders. After his arrests, Lane's first wife said of her ex-husband, he thought women were beneath him and that he could do whatever he wanted. He hit me one time. He abused his mom. He would cuss her, call her names, hit on her. And a former co-workers of Lane's, Jimmy Utt, said that he had ridden with Lane a few times in the late 90s. Jimmy said he was always hateful and always looking for an argument and that eventually, Jimmy just refused to get back into the truck with the guy. In December 2007, Lane was sentenced to 25 to 30 years in prison for the attack at the McDonough home after pleading guilty to nine charges, including home invasion, armed assault in a dwelling, assault with intent to murder, and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. He refused to plead guilty to a charge that indicated he attempted to sexually assault Shay. He didn't want his wife to think he was trying to be unfaithful. That charge was dropped. For the murder of Monica Massaro, Adam Lane pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 50 years. He also pleaded guilty in Pennsylvania and received a sentence of 10 to 20 years for the attempted murder of Patricia Brooks. And finally, Adam Lane pleaded guilty to murder in Pennsylvania to avoid the death penalty and received a life sentence for the murder of Darlene Ewalt. He's serving his sentence at Fayette State Correctional Institution, a maximum security facility southeast of Pittsburgh. So, we've covered a range of different types of killers here on Method and Madness. Men, women, different motives, financial gain, terrorists with a message. What about people who just simply kill because they want to kill? What drives a person to walk suburban streets at night in the dark, checking doors and windows, randomly killing total strangers and then walking away? If what Lane's acquaintances say about him were true, that he hated women or thought they were beneath him, that may have been enough for him in choosing his victims. If he had bloodlust, he may have also figured a woman was an easier target than a man. Adam Lane was a large guy, but given the confrontation that took place with Kevin McDonough, he was most likely only comfortable attacking people that he deemed below him, weaker than him. And for Lane, that was women. And his particular M.O. wasn't the wisest, picking homes at random with no idea what or who could be inside ended up being his demise, thanks to the mama and papa lions that are the McDonough's. Did Adam Lane start to think he was untouchable? Or was he that stupid to think that he could keep this up without being caught by either a large dog, an angry dad, or law enforcement? You look at serial killers like the Golden State Killer original night stalker Joseph D'Angelo. He had a similar M.O. of stalking his victims, looking for women that were home alone, until eventually targeting couples. Now, why was he so, quote-unquote, successful? 
Was it because he carried a gun and was able to get his victims to comply and Adam Lane only carried knives? Was D'Angelo smarter about targeting his victims? Look at how sloppy Adam Lane had already gotten the night he was caught. He allowed two different women at two different homes to see him attempting to break in before fleeing. He chose a house where a man was present, and clearly he didn't have the ability to fight him off. It's hard to look at this case of a horrific serial killer and not wonder if any of these crimes could have been prevented. Adam Lane gave off some creep vibes to people who knew him or encountered him in the day-to-day, but nothing shouted out, apparently, that he would start hunting humans. Is it possible that after the murder of Darlene Ewalt, further attacks could have been prevented? Is it possible that the police were too laser-focused on the husband rather than considering other alternatives? In the 1995 film Copycat, directed by John M. Yell, Sigourney Weaver stars as Dr. Helen Hudson, a criminal psychologist. Now, if you haven't seen it, know that this is not a critically acclaimed film, but it's a fun one that I've turned on many times over the years. It's a must-see for anyone interested in true crime, which I assume you are. So in the movie, the character of Helen is teaming up with two detectives, played by Holly Hunter and Dermot Mulroney, in San Francisco to catch a serial killer. The viewer knows fairly early on who the killer is and that he's a copycat killer, taking after some infamous murderers like Dahmer and Son of Sam. When Helen finds out that a second victim was killed in a manner much different than the first victim, she says, he changed his M.O., they don't do that. It's then that they realize they're dealing with a copycat. Now, 26 years later, those that study crime have said that the theory that serial killers don't change their M.O. isn't entirely true. I think it was Paul Holes that said this not too long ago on his podcast, and that realization kind of blew my mind. Everything I was taught in college told me otherwise. So looking into it, there are surely some killers that have changed their M.O. Whether they get more comfortable with an element of their crime and evolve it, or they bring along an additional tool or weapon to help problem-solve something they faced previously. The reason I bring this up is that sometimes these assumptions can blind law enforcement to the evidence. In the case of Darlene Ewalt, it just didn't seem plausible that a stranger would emerge from the dark and randomly kill a woman with nothing to gain. No sexual gratification, no robbery. If Helen Hudson were there, she'd probably say, that doesn't happen. Despite the fact that there was no evidence that pointed at Todd Ewalt, sometimes years of experience works against you. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It helps new listeners find me, and I really appreciate it. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.